is the Storymobile podcast. We are a solar-powered moving art space that travels to events and through neighborhoods to collect your stories. The St. Paul Almanac book was created in 2005 and has since been released annually. The goal is to bring together the diverse community of St. Paul through literary arts. The Almanac is a meeting place for sharing stories and artwork of our community. This year, the St. Paul Almanac released their 11th volume, On a Collected Path. As part of a reading festival, authors have gathered at various venues throughout St. Paul to read their fabulous work. On Friday, May 12th, readers gathered at Cahoots Coffee Shop in St. Paul to read their pieces from St. Paul Almanac's Volume 11, On a Collected Path. Well, good evening, everyone. I think we'll get going with our reading now. So welcome to St. Paul Almanac Reading here at Cahoots. Uh, really happy to have you all here, especially on such a lovely evening. And uh, we get to be outdoors, so yay. Um, if you haven't seen it, St. Paul Almanac has its new issue out and we have copies for sale. Our friend David here will have them for sale if you want to pick one up. Um, and I am your host. I'm sorry I didn't say that. My name is Michael Kiso Moore. So again, I'm just so glad to see you. So let's get started. Uh, our first reader tonight will be Yvonne Pearson. And Yvonne's poetry has appeared previously in the St. Paul Almanac, as well in other journals and magazines, including Amethyst and Agate, Poems of Lake Superior, Main Street Rag, Chrysalis Reader, Wolfhead Quarterly, Open to Interpretation, Sidewalks, Literary Mama, Sing Heavenly Muse, Transformations. She is the recipient of a Loft Creative Nonfiction Award, the Shabo Award in Children's Literature, and Minnesota State Arts Board Grant. So please give a warm welcome to Yvonne Pearson. Well, I see that my poem it's, is put in the section called Loss, and it's also about uh, children. So I'm going to start with the theme of children tonight and loss. This poem in the book is called Kindergarten. I wake up this morning and I don't have any choice. The wind is collecting pieces of gold dropped by the elm. Look, I yell, get your damn shoes on before the bus comes. The tears start then, tracked on his cheeks. I'm sorry, it's the turning, the turning, telling the leaves to leave. I brush off the tears, fingers moving in opposite directions away from his nose. Six freckles from summer. It's okay, I tell him. You belong in school now. He climbs into the belly of the yellow monster. I wave to the school bus, rolling on, eclipsing the oak and the elm. Okay, the next one is also a child and a lost one. Uh, and it's exactly right for this time of year. It's called graduation ritual. The lace of lilacs tumbles from the crystal vase. Every spring since I have lived in my own house, I bring this fleeting bounty to my bedroom, the flower of brides. This year, I bring the entire tree inside, fill my house with lavender lilacs, purple lilacs, lilac scent, 
cascading from piano, table, tile, and glass. More fragile than lilies, more fleeting than roses. The flower of babies and old women. I fill my house today with riotous beauty, lilac bursting open the season. It's the day we celebrate her leave-taking. We lay out strawberries, cream cheese, watermelon, wine. We lay out stories, paintings, and old photos. One of my belly swelling welcome under cotton flowers. Me still the sole owner of the girl. One of her tulip head cradled in her father's palm. One of our girl feeding her baby brother. Our girl naked under the walnut tree. Slowly the scene changes. She preens for the first dancing party, hugs friends, climbs the Grand Canyon, builds habitat houses. She's wrapped in lavender chiffon and white prom roses. We lay out coffee cookies, toffee cookies and tea ring. We lay out brownies and welcome to a hundred people who cannot help us as we lay out our swelling Godspeed hearts. And I bring lilacs to her bedside table, a first bouquet for her, the fragrance filling the room she prepares to leave. And this is also a child one. Oh, but this is for my grandson, because I've gotten old enough to have <laughs> write about grandchildren as well as children. The music the little boy sings, lo, 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 as he tries to form words about stones and bees and the neighbor's cat. Lo, 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 he trills as he tries to speak his joy for the larkspur, for the front stoop, for the paint-peeled stair that leads down from his own red door. Knee bent at acute angle when obtuse would have served better. He falls from the last step, short of his goal, the stick, a snapped wing of a maple. Lo, now in the trenches, he howls at injustice, at skinned knees and empty bellies all around the world. And the sparrow sings to him, morning has broken. So he unfolds like a crane, sings lo, 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 lo to the sparrow, a light in the palm on the boulevard, who has been waiting for him to join in the melodies that shape the world. Now I'm going to do one. Tiny, tiny, short, short one. Um, and this is in honor of my friend Lucy, who's always loved this one so much. It's called Eaten Alive. Hamburgers, carrots, milk, apples, bananas, peanut butter, orange juice. They are always hungry. All day I feed and I feed. I know why the sow devours her young. But it would stop the driven mother at the trough if only piglets could learn to pronounce her name. Thank you. Our next reader, David Mather, is a writer, archaeologist, and gardener. He and his family enjoy life on the west side, and David is the author of Frog in the House, a book for children that takes place here in St. Paul. Please welcome David. Thank you. This is called Lost and Found. I'm searching for our dog tonight in the October rain. Actually, it's worse than that. I'm searching for my nine-year-old daughter's dog. He's her first dog, a birthday gift a few years ago. 
Her grandparents had gone to the rescue center just to look. We received photos later that day. I wasn't ready for this, but as we met him the next night, I knew that didn't matter anymore. He was an adorable and naughty puppy. Isabel named him Coco because the tips of his ears looked like they'd been dipped in hot cocoa. The choice of, a name, of the name was a small relief. She was six then, and she also considered teddy bear, fluffy, chocolate ice cream, and My Little Pony. As a puppy, Coco had sharp little needle teeth and he liked to chew. He especially liked socks. Once he ate one of Isabel's, small and bright pink, he threw it up a few times but would quickly eat it again. A few days later, I noticed in the backyard that he had passed it. Unfortunately, he saw me notice. We both stood silent, still, pretending nonchalance but keeping each other in view. <laughs> then he went for it. Not wanting a vet bill, I lunged for it too and ended up prying his jaws open while a turd-encased sock jiggled around halfway out of his mouth. What have I become, I wondered. There's not enough hand sanitizer in the world for a moment like that. Coco was a good, support, a good sport about his loss, at least, wagging his tail and licking his lips. Now I, return, I, I briefly return to the house for a flashlight and his leash. I haven't found him quickly. Isabel is still crying, and I lie to her, a dumb lie. I tell her not to worry because I'm good at finding lost pets. Wandering the neighborhood streets calling for Coco, I wince at the memory of those words. He could be anywhere. Our corner of the west side is a maze of dead-end streets cut into steep wooded slopes. I know it well because of Coco. It is surreal to be walking it now without him. We hadn't lived here long in our first house before he joined our family. Coco and I rarely miss a day exploring the neighborhood together. Nearly three now, he's grown into a handsome dog with golden retriever coloring and the body shape of a chow. He has mellowed with age, and so have I. He's my buddy. Just a few hours ago, I was lying on the floor with him, rubbing his belly, and now he's gone. I can't believe it. My gut aches. But there's a glimmer of hope. A guy tells me that he saw a dog running left at the next corner. Either that or a deer, he says. Soon after, peering through thick brush into an overgrown lot, I hear a big animal stamp and snort. Not Coco. Wandering isn't working. I need a game changer. I yell, Coco, let's go for a walk. It seems silly since he's already walking without me, but these are the words that get him more excited than anything. Besides, I have no other options. I keep belting it out because I'm not going to give up. On the fourth try, I hear tags jingling, and there he is, a beautiful sight running down the street toward me from the next block. He's stolen someone's wiffle ball. He sits wiggling like he always does when we're about to go, and I attach the leash. We're both soaked, but life is good, and it's a short walk back home. So, thank you. Our next reader is Abe Levine. Is Abe here? Oh, hey, you're Abe. Great, wonderful. So here's what I know about Abe. Abe is a community-based chef and gardener who he says is both strange and full of flavor, like an eggplant. His kitchen is his dojo, and you're invited to judo chop. Please welcome Abe. <laughs> And my name is pronounced Abby, but it's spelled Abe. Um, so this piece is called Minnesota Medicine. I came to Minnesota in 2007. Um, ended up staying with the host family uh, in 2009 or 10, and so wanted to write about that experience. 
Oh, and have, have you guys heard of the word Hapa or Hapa? Yes. Someone who's half Asian and something else. It was really common in Hawaii, uh, and, and now it's kind of been adopted by the rest of the continental U.S., so. Um, could a Hapa kid who grew up staining dim sum tablecloths with soy sauce get used to the land of lafsa and hot dish? Could I make the switch from bok choy and gai lan to kale? You could say that the seven-layer bar is a transition and that my story of getting rooted here is a testament to the place of food, family, and gratitude. I grew up in Popo's home. My grandmother had emigrated from southern China to marry my gonggong. She ran a one-room laundromat where she also raised four children, my mom, her sister, whom we lost, and two brothers. She later convinced gonggong that they needed to open a restaurant in order to save money and buy a house. And in that home, several relatives would arrive and stay in the tight space that would become our pantry. My earliest memories of Papua's home include turning over bricks in the backyard in search of the creepy crawlies and slimy slitherers and being with family on Sunday nights. Every Sunday, Papua would cook a big feast and invite over my mom's brother, Billy, his wife, Susan, and their three daughters, Jenny, Christina, and Tanya. She would start in the afternoon, the kitchen filling with the scents of salty steam, dried shrimp, and fried fish that rose like incantations drifting from her walk. The rhythm of a cleaver hitting wood, pea pod ends being flipped into a plastic shopping bag, and the scraping of spatula lifting and tossing veggies has become my forever background music when cooking. This was one time during the week when I could open up and soak it all in, the flavors, the family, and our madness. Susan would yell at Billy, everybody would talk about my dad, and Susan would roll her eyes, and we'd eat Papua's food. On Thanksgiving, there would be a glazed ham and Pillsbury Crescent rolls, and on other fine days, there'd be rice porridge called juk, flavored with ham bones and a side of fried chicken. I had it good. Maybe I didn't know it, but my stomach smiled. With friends, I joked about my uncle's family being Chinese rednecks, and maybe by way of those stories alluded to my own working class background, my uncle didn't pick up the roadkill like the Beverly Hillbillies, the Beverly Hillbillies, but he would nab just about everything else, especially free books. Picking up cans was supplemental income, and he did bring home nice furniture. Billy was always hunting for a bargain, even if it meant driving 10 miles to get a $5 gas certificate. Can't beat that, he'd say with a Boston accent. He, like my mom, always found ways to provide. I went to school in a different town than the one I lived in, and the kids there generally came from wealthier families. Those Sundays were my Sabbath. Home cooking, school lunch was my everyday break. And moreover, it was free for me. The lunch ladies were my tias. And at the checkout register sat Maureen, a single mom, tiny like mine, but with light freckles and curly red hair. She always looked out for me, and at the end of the year gave me a free ice cream. I never quite knew how to identify myself. Even pronouncing my own name got to be a challenge. And when I told folks I was a Chinese Jew, I either got doubtful responses or awe. Really? What great genes? <laughs> Beyond my ethnicity, I was the artfully quirky offspring of my iconoclastic dad and my mother, whose every muscle, impulse, and fiber of her five foot one inch frame was directed into supporting me. I was my own mix of a self-conscious classroom entertainer striving to be somebody. When I got to McAllister College, I began to pick up identity labels, Buddhist, vegetarian, environmentalist, but I still hadn't found me, didn't feel I had my place among the inspirational change makers at my elite liberal arts university. In my sophomore year, I had the opportunity to live with a family in St. Paul. To tell the truth, I was nervous about getting off campus and being in a neighborhood I didn't know. But when Nadia, the mother of the family I lived with, asked me to explain meditation to her five-year-old daughter, Anissa, I knew it was the place for me. 
Nadia and Anissa quickly grew on me, and so did Roscoe the dog, my walking buddy. I became the compassionate and grounded brother who was conscious about food. Even though Anissa didn't believe in the word, she got a kick out of chanting, vegetables, vegetables, yay, 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 candy, candy, go away. <laughs> I love being by her side, taking her to the park to do flips on the monkey bars, helping her get ready for school, and getting through the difficult times of, nobody likes me. When Nadia would chide Anissa in Arabic, Bittis, yalla, I was taken back to the days when Papua would scold me, Tobet, bad boy, no set soy in the house. And when Anissa would offer me her own version of a prayer before meals, thanking her mom for dinner, I saw the circle of life coming into completion. After college, I decided to work with kids. I taught in the areas of art, spirituality, environment, and language arts in St. Paul and Minneapolis as I orchestrated fashionable food parties after school, making items such as fried chicken, mango salsa, and garden salads, I realized that cooking and eating robustly were infused into my genes and taste buds, and that the work of kissing the earth and sharing her fruits brought me to create an embodied tapestry with youth. The Twin Cities have given me love, food, and culture through relationships that are steadily filling out the shades and contours of my silhouette, in addition to filling my belly. And what more can a city do for you than reveal your innermost growing edges as you seek home? These are the people and memories that guide me as I rock the walk to create a savory medley of words, foods, and family in Minnesota. So our next reader is Deborah Stone. And what I know about Deborah is that she is a short story writer and poet who lives in Twin Cities with her dogs and husband. I think it's interesting that she says dogs before she says her husband. <laughs> so please give a welcome to Deborah. I met my husband. I'm, I met my dogs before I met my husband. So that's why they get priority. Um, my poem is in chapter four about family, and I write a lot about family. So this is my poem. It's about snow. Hopefully we won't get any more. And it's an autobiographical poem. Snow intentionally floats into her raised arms onto open lips and tongue, tasting like ice cream. She, a descendant of the Ibu, Ojibwe, Irish, Born at St. Joseph Hospital, she wants to catch the black muskrat scampering along the banks of Bassett Creek, wood waste bobbing in the creek from silent sawmills. From the bank, she tries to fish out the wood for a trap and struggles, one step at a time, sinking in the downy snow, leaving behind a zigging, zagging pattern that quickly disappears as the wind scatters crystal snowflakes. She likes the snow crunching under her feet, feet big as grandma's. It snows nine months out of 12. Her people know snow. They were once farmers, ranchers, breaking horses and mules, living on the arid sandhills of Nebraska, then leaving for Minnesota for freedom, fortune, working on railroads, creating another life, a house with a parlor, a green Davenport with threadbare arms, covered with cream-colored doilies. Rondo and Victoria was their home until I-94 tore through. Her mother married a boy from the north side, a tangled neighborhood of Jews, Norwegians, Finns, Germans, 
Indians, Mexicans, hordes of rainbow children making joyous noise along the banks of Bassett Creek. Mangled rubber tires, sharp edges of tin and broken glass glisten in the muddy bottom waiting for summer toys. Thank you. Uh, our next reader is Ronald Craig Spong, and uh, what I know about him is he spent his formative years in St. Paul before his family moved to Rochester. His hometown lured him back after college, military service, and marriage when he and Katie embarked upon raising four children in Merriam Park. Retired after 40 years in public health, he writes about his experience. Please give Ronald a welcome. Hi. Thank you. <clears throat> Uh, this was also in the family section. Uh, she did not mention Swedes, but here I am. Uh, it's entitled, The Loon Calls. It all began with my father, known as Cliff, by his Swedish immigrant parents, Oscar and Marta, who settled in Minnesota in the late 1800s. Who we learned it from, I never knew, but it started innocently enough when I was very young. My father would yell, Ronnie, come home right now, so loudly that the whole neighborhood would hear him. My other mother, Edna, would plead with him to lower his voice so as not to embarrass the family. Resigned to an alternate means to summon his son, my father would cup his two hands together, cover his thumb knuckles in it with his parted lips, and then lightly blow into the hand-formed chamber. Hermann von Helmholtz, would have been impressed by my father's version of the Jew German physicist's resonator akin to blowing across the top of a bottle to make a sound. Let's see if I can actually do it. Oh, something like that, anyhow. I'm too nervous. <laughs> by carefully opening and closing the remaining four fingers of one hand, which was uh, firmly clasped around the other hand, the pitch of the emanating found sound could be varied along with its loudness by controlling his breath's intensity. Intrigued by my father's handcrafted sounds, I pleaded with him to teach me. After years and many humbling attempts, mostly humbling, that were sometimes aesthetically pleasing but more often flat, I eventually learned to duplicate the sounds that he made. In particular, I was, it was his mimicry of a loon's plaintive call that I especially sought to perfect. Eventually, I succeeded in imitating the call of a loon, including the loon's trilling or tremolo that reminded me of laughter. Many years later, my loon calls waxed rhapsodic, wafting through the streets of our Marion Park neighborhood and beyond. Upon hearing the loon call, our children, Bridget, Shelley, Christopher, and Laura, would come running home, running, would come running home for dinner, chores, and, or bedtime became so much a part of our family's ritual that it was found utility even in our travels. As our family matured, eventually married, the loon calls became a tradition even among our grandchildren. One summer, our eldest Bridget was enjoying a break from her freshman college classes with her good friend Mary at the Two Harbors campground along the North Shore of Lake Superior, escaping the prying eyes of their parents who were some 200 miles south the underage teenagers were relaxing in their tent, drinking beer, and having a really good time. Suddenly, Bridget perked up, raised her hand, and motioned to Mary to be quiet. There it was again, another loon call. Uncertain, she waited until she heard it a third time. Oh my God, it's my dad! 
Bridget said suddenly. Worried, Mary replied, what did you say? Didn't you hear that loon call? Bridget responded in a growing panic. That's my dad's way of trying to find me. He must be out there somewhere searching for me. If he finds me with this beer, I'm going to be in really big trouble and get grounded for sure. With that, the two of them dumped their beers outside of the tent and hid the bottles. Then they went searching for me as he heard the loon call again. However, after walking around the campground without finding me, they wandered down to the shoreline of Burlington Bay. Again, they heard the loon call. Bewildered, they looked out into the bay within the direction of the sound. They realized that the call was coming from a real loon swimming offshore and not from me. Relieved. They laughed heartily and resumed their adventure. Some years later, while attending a Prairie Home Companion street dance, I put my father's training to the ultimate test. Garrison Keeler announced a loon calling contest and invited participants to perform on the outdoor stage. Urged on by others who had heard me practice my loon calls on the sidewalk, I joined the contest, but momentarily, I lost my skill to stage fright. Thank you. Thank you very much. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's what it sounds like. <laughs> well, I was invited to also be a reader tonight, so I will conclude our reading tonight with a couple poems. So um, it's actually been a, a pretty tough couple weeks. Um, uh, just recently, a friend of mine was killed in a car crash, so that's been really weighing very heavy on me and many of the communities I'm a part of. And um, other friends of mine have been dealing with a lot of losses too. So I, I wanted to read this next poem. It's called Depression. It's, um, depression is something I've dealt with over the years, and perhaps some of you know this feeling very well too. I've never shared this poem out loud before and I just kind of want to see how this sounds. So um, I hope you'll join with me in this little journey. So it's called Depression. Sun and moon exchange places. Impersonal daylight touches cold skin. Words fall out of books by multitudes, withering like worms on pale ground. Salted rain slowly drips from blackened leaves of bone-white trees. Something heaves below ocean waves. The mackerel will not speak its name. Middle sea goes flat on all instruments. Musicians lose hope and find new careers. Yes is bound by rusty chains, lost in chambers forgotten. At night, the scorching desires burst into hateful things. Dreams grow heavy and sweat as color seeps out of the days. Someone stands on a high bridge. Is it you, me, another lost soul? The river slows beneath, waiting. The air itself holds its breath. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> So the next and last poem I'll read is my poem that was in, published in this book, uh, page 46, and is called The Lost Language. The Lost Language. I dream of finding a lost language, 
a language that has no words for war or any kind of violence a human can make against another. This old, forgot language will be wise in the use of gender, not binary. This language won't even have the word for binary. And this will be a language that has more words for love than the colors of large box of crayons. Each word a new shade of care, and so vast that dictionaries fill to the brim with every different hue. And all the colors of the human clan will be described by those words of love. For when you speak of your fellow beings with love, how could you ever harm one? If we cannot find this long lost language, then let us make it now. Thank you. So thank you, everyone. Let's give another hand to all of our really great readers tonight. It's been a wonderful night. To hear more stories, learn more about Storymobile, and to find out where we'll be pedaling off to next, visit storymobile.org.